What is this series about? Everybody knows that. What, what is that about? Is this a Geico commercial? What is the, what is the deal here? Um, no, there are certain propositions, though. It's probably inspired by the Geico commercial, but there are certain propositions that everybody knows. I mean, it just goes without thinking. You don't even have to, to give it a second thought. It's so obvious that everybody knows this is true. You know, the earth is round, the sun is hot, you know, the browns can't win, whatever the issue is. Um, there's, you don't even have to think about it. You know, there's always a rebuilding year for those guys. Um, the problem with it, though, is there are certain propositions that are stated as everybody knows, stated as fact, recognized as fact, that in fact are not fact. As a matter of fact... The recognition and acceptance as such can just be toxic. You know, for example, if you grew up or you were in the South prior to the end of the Civil War, you would have heard something like this. Um, of course, slavery's fine. Everybody knows that. If you were in the, anywhere in the U.S., 1900, generally speaking, you would hear, of course, women shouldn't vote. Everybody knows that. Just because everybody knows that doesn't mean that that's correct. Doesn't mean that that's right. Now, there are other presuppositions that are, are made, propositions that are made, that are, in this culture, you can't live here in the United States, you can't live in Erie, Pennsylvania, if you have the computer, if you have television, if you, you're subject to the world at all, you can't live without hearing these they're, they're mentioned as fact. They're recognized as fact. Everybody knows these things. They're stated as such, but yet they're toxic to your faith. They're, they're actually not based on research. They're not based on, on truth. But you can't help but hear these things all the time. Newscasters and media, whatever else. And that you're just bombarded with these things. So much so that they erode your confidence in, in God, in your faith. Uh, what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be looking at three, for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at three different questions, three different propositions that are put out there as fact. Everybody knows this, at least in our culture, in our society. And we're going to challenge them and say, really? We want to detox a little bit the next three weeks. And again, this is so, so important. because You don't even think about it. And inside you might be saying, yeah, well, I don't believe that even though you're hearing it constantly, and you're hearing it from different people constantly, well, I don't believe that. It still is eroding slowly your confidence in God. Now, the first question we're going to deal with this morning, let me give you the, the background on this. Several years ago, my oldest boy uh, was probably about 13 at the time, Nathan was, and he came to me, and he was looking pretty worried. He grew up in a pastor's home, of course. And he said, I got a question, Dad. So, okay. And he... Uh, Worded it differently, but in essence, this was his question. He said, Dad, uh, the Bible teaches that there was a man named Jesus who came down from heaven. He worked lots of miracles. He died for us. And then he rose again. I said, well, yeah. He says, and, and Dad, the, the Bible teaches, right, that if you don't believe in him, you don't surrender to him, you don't trust him, then when you die, you'll go to, to hell for forever. And, and Dad, the Bible teaches that, there's, that, that nothing is supposed to occupy our, our heart more than living to tell people this. And, and Dad, the, the Bible tells us that there are some things that are just wrong and there are other things that are, are right. And somehow if we get that as mixed up, there's some sort of, of, of judgment going on. And, and Dad, you, you're a pastor. You tell people to live their lives based on the Bible. 
said, yeah. Well, what if the Bible's not true? That changes everything. What if it's not true? And you know, for a 13-year-old kid, he hit a very... I mean, that's just the crux of it, isn't it? That all of our faith, everything we say we believe, everything we're living for, if the Bible's not true, it's just a house of cards. It's, it all comes crumbling down. And so the key question... Is the Bible true? I mean, this is right away the first words we find other than the narrator, other than God in the, in the Old Testament is Satan. And he says, hath God said? He knows. The first thing you've got to go after is the word of God. The Bible, is the Bible true? This is really a significant question for us. And as we deal with, with it, you know, we, we can't. Say, well, yeah, of course it is, because 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, for all scriptures inspired by God. Because the person who's saying, wait, 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 this is circular reasoning. I don't believe the Bible's authoritative. You're using the Bible. I could have wrote a book and said that this book is actually the word of God. Anybody could write that, but how do you know it's true outside of, of, of the verses? This is, this is significant if we're going to live in this world. It's probably significant for our, our own hearts. And so what we want to look at this morning is several evidences. You know, people say, prove it. You know, prove that there is a God. Prove that there is a God. Well, you can't prove, prove these things. You can't prove historical things scientifically, right? Scientific proof, you have to be in a, a laboratory and it has to be able to be tested over and over and over again uh, to be scientific proof. But you do it the way you do in a court of law. You prove historical things historically by mounting up evidences. Uh, you know, for example, we, we had a missions group go to the DR. And, you know, they, they said they went to the DR. Personally, I think they took the money and went to Vegas, right? That's, that's probably what they did. Now, now, okay, they say, but so they show us the plane tickets. We said, well, pff, you know, anybody can generate those. I've got a fancy computer program of some sort. Of course, it's, it's faked. They said, well, we, we talked to them all and they all have the same story. Well, yeah, but maybe they all just got this thing, got, got together and colluded this whole noise. And so, so we go down the DR and sure enough, there's some people that, that say, yeah, we saw them here. Well, maybe they were paid off. Maybe they came down, paid these people off and then left, right? Is it, is it still, isn't it possible that they really did? Well, they've got stuff bought from the DR and we look at it and they go, yeah, they bought it online. We, you know, we can always, if we don't want to believe it, then we, we, there's no evidence. But when we stack up the, the historical evidence, sooner or later you say, well, it sure looks like that's really where they went. It looks like that's really what happened. Same thing with, with Scripture. I think we can stack up the evidences that any rational mind will, will come to uh, the same conclusion. Because here's the question. Can you be an intelligent 21st century American who doesn't deny science, and still hold to the truth of the Bible, still believe the Bible's true, can you, can you do that? And of course our culture would say, everybody knows that you can't, no way. Everybody knows the Bible was written by just humans. And even if they were sincere, and probably they weren't, probably they were trying to have their agenda going, but even if they were sincere, they were subject to, to failing and mistakes like everybody else. Everybody knows that. And everybody knows that the Bible was written in a primeval era. It mirrors a culture and a time that's, that's oppressive. 
Everyone knows that. And everybody knows that the Bible's filled with errors and myths. And everybody knows. Everybody knows that if you believe the Bible, you become a homophobic, Islamophobic, close-minded, no-minded, um, narrow-minded, oppressive, repressive, um, legalistic, prejudicial, anti-women, anti-fun, anti-everything kook. That's what's going to happen if you believe the Bible. Everybody knows that. That's kind of the word that's out there. And I don't know about you. I don't want to be those things. But everybody knows that if you believe the Bible, that's who you are. So, wow. So, what happens is maybe in times past, we would say with a greater degree of volume or at least with an explanation point, I believe the Bible is God's word and my authority for life. Today, though, with the questions, we turn that into like a whisper with a question mark. And maybe you're like, well... There's some stuff in the Bible that's okay. That's what it comes down to. So what we want to do today, it's a different sort of message, because it's really not a message from the Bible as much as it is a message about the Bible. And again, we're, we're looking to say, is there, is there any rationality, validity, for us believing that the Bible is, 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 is true? What is, what's the evidence of, of, for the Scripture? And there's a couple different evidences. One, one is the... the Call it the manuscript authority. The manuscript evidence is overwhelming for the Bible. It's, 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 you don't hear this too much, but it's just amazing when you research it. Pretend for just a second that I am the Apostle Paul. Okay, I know that's a big stretch, but just pretend I am. Uh, I probably look like him a little bit, but I'm hanging out one day, and God gives me his word. God inspires me, and so I write it down. And uh, this is God's word. This came directly from God. And this wrote it down. And so this is God's word. And I know it's God's word. And so I'm always reading it and memorizing it and studying it and sharing it with my family. And we have family devotions on this thing. And I'm just, for years, I'm studying this. But you know what? It's getting tattered after all these years. I'm getting ready to die. So I call my, my three kids in. And I say, guys, I'm getting ready to die. And so I want to give you God's word. And they, they say, oh, this is, that's right. This is God's word. All this family devotion. That's right. Wow. But, Dad, it's looking pretty rough. And so they all decide, we better make a copy of this in order to keep it around. And so they all make a copy of it. And then this, this kind of just, this is the original. This is gonna, now, is that inspired, their copies? Or is this, this is the only thing that was inspired. Not, not what they wrote, just what God gave me. But you know what? The original is just, all oh, it, it dissolves, it burns up, it falls. And so one of my guys goes to Europe. One of my guys goes to Asia. Another one of my guys goes to, goes to Africa. And they live. And then when they start to get old, you know what they do? They pass that down to their kids. And then when their kids use it as God's word, and they spread it. But then they get old, they pass it down to their kids. And they pass it down to their kids. On and on and on. All the way till you get to the back wall. Or it gets all the way around. Back wall is 1450. And that's when the printing press was invented. Everything on the other side of the wall, the printing press, whole different story. But everything this side of it is called manuscripts. Now, now, keep in mind, God inspired mine. He didn't inspire yours. Yours are just copies. And now mine, it's dissolved. It's gone. We don't have it anymore. You know, there are no more originals of the Bible. There are none. There are none. So how do you know that what you hold in your hand is actually what was written down by God? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Well, you do a couple of things. 
You want to find this message, but you, this one's gone, so what are you going to do? Well, first of all, you get an idea. Let's collect all of the manuscripts, as many as we can get. We get all the ones from Europe over here. We'll get all the ones from Asia. We'll get all the ones from Africa. We'll kind of lay them out in chronological order. We'll compare them and see what they, if they say the same thing and kind of background. And that's one thing you're going to do. A second thing you'll do is you'll try to get the oldest manuscripts, right? I mean, the ones that maybe you can't get mine, but maybe you can get the one that my kid had. Or his child. We're so close to mine. Because a lot less chance of being copied over and over and over of errors, right? You want to get the oldest you can get. That's what you want to do. All right, let me show you a chart. And let me explain this thing to you. We have that up there. Yeah, there we go. Um, Pliny the Younger. Pliny uh, was a magistrate underneath the emperor Trajan, wrote about a hundred, okay? Um, the earliest copy we have for Pliny today, the, I mean the oldest copy we can get, is dated 850. So that's about a 750-year gap from between the original and the oldest thing. So there's a lot of years of copying that just we lost those, they dissolved, whatever else, the oldest one. But you know what? No one will, will question whether what we have today is actually what Pliny wrote. That's just not questioned. Of course it is what he wrote. And we've only got, was it seven manuscripts? We gathered all the manuscripts, everything before the printing press. We only had seven, compared them all, and we got what we have with Pliny the Younger. Caesar, Caesar's Gallic Wars, uh, Il Caesar, uh, written about 100 uh, B.C. Earliest copy is A.D. 900. That's about a thousand-year gap. Well, we lost the original. We lost all these years of copying. The oldest one we got is about a thousand years removed when it was actually written. That's a big gap. We've got ten copies, so we put them together and we kind of... You know, no one will question whether what we have when we have Caesar's Gallic Wars, no one will question that we have actually good solid history. No one will question that. Uh, Plato. Plato wrote in 400 B.C. basically. The oldest copy we have is 900. That's, that's a big gap between when he actually wrote and the oldest copy we have, a lot of opportunity in copying, 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 for errors to have crept in. But, you know, nobody, what is it, only seven copies. No one will question today. You go to a, a, an ancient literature uh, school and you say, I, I don't think that what we have by Plato is actually what he wrote down. You're going to be laughed at because no one's going to question that what we have is actually what he wrote, even though there was this huge gap, even though there was only uh, seven uh, manuscripts. Homer's Iliad. We all had to read the Iliad. It's a long, drawn-out thing, right? We, but we had to read the Iliad. This is the second best work of antiquity, okay? He wrote 900 B.C. Our oldest copy that we got is 400 B.C. That's only 500-year gap. 500 years from our oldest copy to the time it was written. So we lost a good handful, but closer than the rest of them. And we have 643 manuscripts. So you can compare them all out and cross-check just to see if we have what's right. So, so Homer, everybody knows, is almost exactly what Homer actually wrote. If not exact, the manuscript evidence is too great. New Testament. Remember, Homer was number two. New Testament. It was written anywhere from uh, I'm gonna, 50 to, to 100 uh, A.D., Earliest manuscript, we have oldest manuscript, Bodmer Papyri, dated 130 A.D. So we probably don't, we don't have the original, but we might have second generation, maybe third. Real small gap. And you know how many manuscripts there are? Over 24,000 manuscripts. It's like God said, I know the people are going to want to make sure that what they have is what was actually written. And so he's given us a plethora 
of, of manuscripts. And what's amazing about this is there have been all kinds of edicts to burn the Bibles and, and burn all of the, the manuscripts. And yet still, we're able to, to preserve 24,000 plus of them. If anyone says that, that uh, they're not, they believe that the Bibles have all been corrupted and it's really not what originally was and it's been changed a thousand times... If they're, if they're saying that, then they also have to throw out Pliny and Caesar and Plato and Aristotle. They've got to throw out the ten greatest works of antiquity if they're going to hold to that. What we have here was, it was if almost, if not exactly, what Paul wrote down. Let me, Sir Frederick Kenyon, he was the chief librarian at the museum, British Museum, the leading manuscript authority in the world. He said this, he said, I don't even know if the guy was a Christian. He said, it cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain. Especially is this the case with the New Testament. The number of manuscripts, the early translations from it, and the quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said for no other ancient book in the world. The manuscript authority. People might say everyone knows the Bible's full of errors. Well, the historians, who literary historians don't think that. Uh, another reason why we believe the Bible's true is because the, the uh, testimony of the authors. Matthew, let's look at the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are guys that all claim to be eyewitnesses. Matthew was one of his apostles. Uh, Mark was actually Peter's uh, secretary. So you can actually call the book of Mark Peter if you want to, the book of Peter. But Mark wrote it down. Um, Luke was Paul's uh, friend. John was Jesus' best friend. He probably knows. These guys claim to be eyewitnesses. Now, this is what you hear. All, this is what everybody knows. I heard this a gazillion times. I heard it this week on the television. I was watching a, a debate. And um, it's stated that we all know, of course, that the events in the Gospels were written down hundreds of years after they actually happened. And when they first had the Jesus, and then when they were passed down oral tradition, oral tradition, oral tradition, the story kept being embellished, and the bad things kept being dropping, and he kept acquiring supernatural kind of superhuman characteristics, and so when it was finally written down, you had a superhero over here. Everybody knows that, you know, hundreds of years transpired between what happened and when it was written down. Well, the events in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, most of the events, anywhere from 27 to 30 A.D., that's when they all happened. I believe they were all written down 50s, 60s, so 20 years max after the event. Now, this is, this is some of the reasoning why. First of all, we know that the whole New Testament was written down before 70 A.D. This is how we know this. Um, you cannot overemphasize... Follow, follow this thinking for a second. You can't overemphasize the importance of the temple for Judaism. The temple was what Judaism was. God gave the blueprints for the temple in, when he gave the law on Sinai. The, the temple was a, a, a symbol of God's presence. Inside the temple was the Ark of the Covenant, which was symbolic of God. In the Ark of the Covenant was his Ten Commandments. It was like a contract, their contract that, yes, God is for us. I mean, the, 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 the temple was the only place in Judaism where you could find forgiveness of sins. That was it. And every single Jew in the whole world at the New Testament would come to Jerusalem to the temple once a year 
Once a year. Because the temple was their identity. It was who they are. It was what they are about. Think about when Jesus was crucified. One of the reasons why he was crucified was because he spoke against the temple. The temple was so sacred in Judaism that just to speak against it was capital offense. And so Jesus was killed because he spoke against the temple. Now, we know a couple things. At the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the temple's still working. It's still operable. It's still going. We also know from secular history that in AD 70, Titus, Roman general, came through and raised the temple, destroyed it. it hasn't been rebuilt since. Now, if, if you found a book, Life on the USS Arizona, and you read this, and it's about a sailor on the USS, USS Arizona, and he talks about how wonderful it is to live there, and, and all the other sailors on the boat, and, and some of their escapades they've gotten into in the mess hall, and the fun. And then he ends his book. Last sentence in the book is, it's fun to be a, a sailor on the USS Arizona. You could probably deduce that that was probably written before December 7th, 1941, right? Because at that day, the, the, the USS Arizona went down to the bottom of Pearl Harbor. If you found uh, a book written by someone who worked in the Twin Towers, and he says, man, I love working in the Twin Towers, my view, I'm on the 95th floor, I can see the whole world, it's just wonderful and it's gorgeous. And then at the end of the book, last sentence is, is that the Twin Towers today stand as a tribute to human ingenuity and yada, yada, yada. Uh, you could probably deduce that this was probably written before September 11th, 2001. Uh, and as important as those things are, and I don't ever want to belittle the sacrifices of the folk on the Arizona or in the towers, but in one sense, those don't compare to the temple because when Titus came through, tens of thousands of, of Jews, men, women, and children, were massacred. The, the temple w- was raised. It was gone. God's presence was done. This was, this was the crisis of crises. You can't get beyond this. Don't you think somebody would have mentioned this? If they had written after it? And you'd say, well, there's, there's, there's still a degree of speculation that, well, 80 AD, there's a book called the Didache. 80 AD, I got a copy in my office. And what that is, is that is a church manual in 80 AD, 80. If you're interested in planting a church or running a church, this is how uh, the early church fathers, apostles were saying how you need to run it. In this book, they quote from the Gospel of Matthew. I'm guessing Matthew had to be written and accepted before they could quote from it. Uh, three guys. Uh, a guy named uh, Clement, Clement of Rome. He obviously hung out in Rome. You got Ignatius and you got Polycarp. These guys hung out in, in Asia. They lived around 100. These are, these are church fathers. Polycarp was like a disciple of John, uh, Jesus' best friend. These guys lived about 100. Their writings have been preserved, many of them. Their writings quote from 24 of the 27 New Testament books. You know, if you think about that, one guy's living in in Rome, the other guy's, two guys are living in Asia, and there is no email, there's no electronic media, somehow, but they're quoting from the same sources, around 100, which means that these books had to be written before then and had to be accepted and circulated. So at what point? I mean, substantially, you find um, Luke chapter 1. I'm going to have to pull this because, uh, because of my eyes. Uh, but he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses to write Luke. So who's he interviewing? Well, maybe a shepherd. Most probably interviewed Jesus' mom. Probably interviewed some people who were healed by Jesus. Uh, claiming to be an eyewitness. Um, Polycarp. Check out what Polycarp says. Again, Polycarp was, was, was John's disciple. Next slide. So, so firm is the ground upon which these gospels rest. Notice gospels, 100 he's writing, that the very heretics themselves bear witness to them. He knows of gospels written by 100. Uh, Papias, 125. It says, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote down accurately all that he remembered. So Mark made no mistakes in writing down certain things as he called them to mind. And he paid attention to one thing, to omit none of the things that he had heard and to make no false statements in any of, of them. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15. This is, this is wild. We have that. He says, for what I received, and you have to ask yourself, what, does, what, what, is, what is Paul talking about? What, is, what has he received? He's going to quote from, a, from an ancient hymn that secular historians believe this hymn that Paul's going to quote from here was written 18 months to 8 years after Jesus' resurrection. The first Corinthians written in about 50. So we're, 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 we're talking just first Corinthians is 17 years after Jesus rose. But what, what, is, what has he received? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then Paul goes on, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. You see what Paul Paul's saying, Jesus appeared to 500 people, most of them are still alive. You don't believe me? Go ask them. Just don't, don't, don't trust me, go ask them. There's, there's 500 folks, some of them have died, but most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. You can't say that kind of thing if it didn't really happen. Uh, the, the, these folk were eyewitnesses of the e events. Real important. Anyone starts to say, well, this stuff was written down hundreds of years afterwards. You just got to know that's not the case. Research, that's just not the case. Now, still, that doesn't prove that the miracles really happened. There is a place for faith in this. We'll maybe get into that later. But what happened was, the reason why we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is because they were eyewitnesses. They wrote down some, historically, they wrote historically, they wrote down some things that if, if I was writing a book that I wanted everyone to, to get into, I was trying to develop a religion that I wanted everyone to buy, there are certain things I would, I would take out. I would not write that Jesus, when he was in Gethsemane, said, Father, can this cup please pass from me? I would not have written when Jesus was on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those two things are considered some of the hard sayings of Jesus and they kind of really bothered Christians over the years. I would have just left those out. It had been a lot easier. I would not have included things like the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, there's one God and you've got three persons and a Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and each one is distinct and the complete and same in essence, but they're really not 33% God, 33%, 33%. Each one is 100%, but we don't have three gods. We have one God. That's a heavy doctrine. I think I'd have just left that one out. It'd been a lot easier. They wrote embarrassing things about themselves. If I'm writing a book and I want to look like I know what I'm talking about, I would leave out a lot of the stuff they included in. Um... Throughout the Gospels, the apostles are looking like bumbling. Often, Jesus is rebuking them for their lack of faith. 
I would have left out that part at the upper room when they were all arguing with each other about who was greatest. Or maybe if I was right and I'd said, those guys were arguing, but you know, I, I wasn't. But those guys were arguing about who was greatest. Or when, Jesus, when, when Peter fell into the water, remember, he was trying to walk on the water and he sank and Jesus had to pull him out and rebuke everybody. And then, then Jesus calls Peter Satan. For I would have left that part out too. If, he's Jesus, if, if Peter's going to be the leader of the church, I'm going to leave that one out because that's going to confuse people. Unless... That really happened. I certainly would have left out. I'm in Gethsemane with Jesus and Judas comes and all the disciples run away. Oh, I would not have included that part. I, would have, I, oh, I fought for him, but the rest of them ran. Why would you do that unless, unless that just really happened? Uh, they wrote things that were culturally unacceptable. When Jesus rises from the dead, the first witnesses are women. You need to know, first century, women, women Judaism, uh, women's testimony was not even admissible in court if you wanted to prove that he really did you'd have somebody of standing some 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 general man or something go go in and, and see that the tomb was empty but they chose why would you do that unless it's just what happened um c.s lewis if you remember lewis was a uh, professor of literature at oxford and Lewis says this, he says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they look like. I know none of them are like this, referring to the Gospels. If you were to go, you would read um, um, Beowulf or you read the Iliad, you read anything that, that's, that's myth or legend, it has a distinct style. But the uh, uh, novel genre really didn't kick into the 1800s. You know when people took myth and they tried to uh, make it look like it was history? That was not the way you wrote myth back then. Myth had its own style. This is written like history. It's written as history. Also, these guys, uh, one of their uh, testimony for for their authorship is what they gained, their motivation. What did they gain by this? You know, they had the right religion in Judaism. They were outstanding citizens. They were uh, well-received. Their families liked them. Everyone liked them. Life was going well. Why in the world would they claim Jesus is the Messiah? This, is, this got them kicked out of their families. It got, got their, their families uh, hurt. Every one of the uh, apostles was martyred, killed because of this, except for John. He died in prison because of this. You think that one of them, when the knife came to their throat, they would say, whoa, <laughs> just joking, just joking. We stole the body, actually. Um, but, but all of them die for this. They've gained nothing but pain. They, why would you do that unless they were fully convinced that this was true? This was just true. Now, there's the word out, well, uh, aren't there lots of other Gospels? You know, it's, uh, Dan Brown in his Da Vinci Code, you remember this? Uh, it's, it's, it's a, I don't recommend anyone read the book. It was a fun book, though. Brown did a lot of research in it. He did, and that's part of the thing that makes it uh, uh, scary. Because he has two main characters go to this Bible scholar. And the Bible scholar, Sir Lee Teeming, says this. He says, the Bible is the product of man, my dear, not God. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relatively few were chosen for inclusion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. And his, his, what he's going to go on to say is that they did this only for political reasons. They had all these Gospels, but they just chose the one that made them look good. That was their whole reason. This is in the guise of, of, of fiction. But then not too long after his book, National Geographic comes out with a study, a documentary, a non-fiction documentary on the Gospel of Judas, 
And in this, they say, oh, this was, they, they, they found other deals. This is what uh, New York Times says about National Geographic's Gospel of Judas, all these other Gospels that they found. New York Times says, the discoveries of these texts have shaken up biblical scholarship by revealing the diversity of beliefs and practices among early followers of Jesus. As the findings have trickled down to churches and universities, they have produced a new generation of Christians who now regard the Bible not as the literal word of God, but as a product of historical and political forces that determined which text should be included in the canon and which edited out. The National Geographic would go on to say, this could be explosive for a lot of people. Create a crisis of faith. All these other gospels that they found. These other gospels that they found. They found these things back in 1945. Uh, Nag Hammurabi in, in Egypt. And these, these are, are dated from 150 to 600. No one, nowhere close to being an eyewitness. And these are like the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, uh, the Gospel of Philip. And, and even the secular, the, the non-Christian folk, none of them think that these were the actual Judas and Mary Magdalene and Philip and Thomas, but that they took those names, attributed them to their peace in order to try to get their peace accepted. If you read the Gospel, I got these in, in my office. You can get them at Barnes & Noble, the Gnostic Gospels they're called. That's where I got mine. You can, um, if you read these, and then read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... They're radically different. I mean, just radically different. These guys have an axe to grind. They've got an agenda. It's a lot of opinion. There's a lot of philosophy. There's a lot of uh, wild stuff going on. Uh, it's a, it was a Gnostic cult that was trying to infiltrate Christianity. But the reason why we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not these others, the only reason why is because these others are eyewitnesses. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eyewitnesses. The others are not. So your, your, your word... Uh, eyewitness accounts, eyewitness accounts. It's not something that the uh, culture is going to tell you. Um, another evidence is really the archaeological evidence. You know, I grew up in Chicago. Uh, University of Chicago is, is about an hour away, but University of Chicago is one of the few. Um, universities in the United States that have a uh, Mideast archaeology department. And so uh, my Sunday school teachers, when I was little, would drag us there because they had all these things, that uh, Bible things in their, in, their, in their museum. You can go to their museum today. It's free. Oriental Institute Museum on the campus of the University of Chicago. But you do have to call and get a reservation. Um, but it's like Indiana Jones movie or something. Big marble rooms with nothing but one little glass case in the middle of it. And it's got some of the Dead Sea Scrolls and that kind of thing. Um, but I remember going through there multiple times, and one of my one of my tour guides, and I had this gal uh, several times, not a Christian by any means, and she let you know that. Uh, but she did say, she said, you know, there was a day when archaeologists would just go uh, do their digs without consulting uh, the Bible, but that day is long gone. Because the Bible has proved true historically, archaeologically, over and over again. As a matter of fact, the Bible has never been proven wrong historically. And so now, before we go do any digs, we consult the Bible first to get our bearings straight. A uh, lot of different artifacts. And again, this could be a whole series of different, different aspects to this. But let me just give you a couple. For the longest time, it was argued that Moses, who supposedly wrote the uh, uh, Pentateuch in... 1445 about, 
could not have really written it in 1445 because language had not evolved to that point as you see in the Pentateuch. Uh, legal systems had not evolved to that point of sophistication as you see in the Pentateuch. So certainly Moses could not have written it then. Then in Abla, they discover 17,000 tablets, Assyrian tablets, that have an ex extensive legal system, all of them dated 1,000 years before Moses. And so it's like, oh, I guess maybe we were, maybe, maybe language had evolved, and maybe law systems had evolved at, at that point. Sargon, and this is one of my, my favorite ones. Um, Sargon was a, according to Isaiah 20, verse 1, it says that Sargon was an Assyrian king. And what you need to know is we also have the Assyrian Chronicles. We have the Babylonian Chronicles as well. Assyrian Chronicles were Syria's history as written by the Assyrians. And they have their list of kings. And Sargon's not in it. And so we have it here in Isaiah 20. And so people said, obviously, the Assyrians probably knew their kings better than the Bible. So this is just a mistake that's in the Bible. It's like the Bible's full of these kind of things. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what to do? Until a palace city of an Assyrian king was discovered where the king was so stinking arrogant that he had his name stamped into every single brick of the city. Guess what his name was? Sargon. And when you go to the University of Chicago, you can see Sargon's bull in the Assyria room. And it's, it's probably about the size of this wall. It's just it was engraved into a uh, uh, stone wall. Huge bull of this Assyrian king who never existed, according to the Assyrian Chronicles. A lot of these guys ended up being spin doctors. It's not because um, if, someone, if one of the kings was a, was a black sheep, it's not that they were trying to be deceptive, but you don't list that because that, that's like bad karma for your people. And so um, uh, Sargon, he's very uh, vocal thousands of years after his existence. Uh, the Massa Stone, this is, this is really cool. Second, I think the, the original is in the British Museum today, but they got a copy at University of Chicago, uh, Oriental Institute Museum. Um, in Second Kings chapter 3, it talks about a battle that Israel was having with Moab. And it gets into detail in this battle. And, and, and the Israelites are coming in, and they're beating down the Moabites. They get them all in their city, and it looks like they're going to overtake him. According to 2 Kings 3, the Moabite king comes out on the wall with his son and sacrifices his son to his god, Chemish. And then according to scripture, it doesn't say why, it just says the Israelites retreated. It was done. They were done. It was over. The massive stone is this very battle from the king of Moab's perspective. This is his journal. And if you read this, it's just like you're reading scripture because he talks about the Israelites who's got his Yahweh coming against him and they were losing and they trapped him all in their city and, and they looked like there was no hope until he came out, the king, out onto the wall of his city with his son and sacrificed him to his god, Chemish. And then Chemish gave them the great victory and the Israelites all fled. Uh, you, you read this, it's like, I'm just reading scripture here. And again, you can see, see, I bet you can get a copy on, online. You can see it online. Um, Millard Burroughs from Yale he says this, he says, on the whole, archaeological work has strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the excavations in Palestine. Everybody knows the Bible is bogus. Well, uh, literary historians don't know that. And, and archaeologists don't know that. But it's, it's trumpeted all over the place today. Martin Luther was a uh, priest, Roman Catholic Church. 
and he was uh, greatly bothered when he saw uh, abuses and he saw uh, different doctrines going forth at that time that were uh, uh, based not on the authority of Scripture. And so he wrote a lot of, of, of uh, documents. He wrote a lot of books uh, against those things. And he kept wanting to talk with the, you know, Luther's goal was never to leave the church. His goal was just to, let's get together. We're off the path a little bit, so let's get together and let's bring it all back together. That was his plan. But every time he asked for an audience, they just forget it. Get rid- they I think they assumed he was just going to go away. But he started gaining popularity. And so one day he got an invitation to a city in Germany, Worms, uh, to come and, and discuss his writings. And Luther thought, this is great. And so he walks into this uh, meeting comes to find out it's a trial, and he's on trial. Too late to run at this point. He walks in, and they pull him up front, and there's a table with all of his works on it, and they said, Martin, did you write these? And he said, yes. He said, would you please recant? Would you please let us know that you lied, that these are based from hell, that these, these have nothing to do with God, that you were very wrong to write these? Please recant. He said, well, can we talk about these? And they said, no, 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 we're not talking. We need a simple answer. You're going to recant or you're not. And he knew. He said, no, I'm not recanting. It's, it's, he's done. So he said, well, I, uh, I need to think about this. So he said, you've got 24 hours. Came back the next morning. And Luther said this. He said, your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of Scripture or since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of Pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves, or by manifest reasoning, I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe nor right. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. You and I, in this world, you see where this culture, our culture is, where it's going. It's not going to become more, more Christ follower friendly. We are going to be, and some of you may be in right now, in your meeting of worms, where you are being told, you're being asked, you're being pressured to recant. Maybe everyone else is joking about Christians and joking about the Bible and who believes that, and on and on and on and on. And you're feeling pressure to recant, or at least just be very quiet. That's going to increase. As we live in this world, it's going to increase. And to have the confidence in the Word of God to stand up, even though it's going to cost, it's going to cost. It's going to cost reputation or more. To have the confidence to stand up is only going to come when we understand that God's Word is trustworthy. Our faith in it has not been eroded by, by culture's attacks, by satanic attacks. What, what hell was doing from the very beginning, hath God said, if it's not eroded, if it's strong enough, then when those times come, we will stand strong. We won't waver. And I don't know what that will do or not do. I know Scripture says in the end times, perilous times will come. But he will receive the glory. We will, we will receive a crown. We will be faithful to him to the end. Everybody knows that the Bible's bogus, our world tells us. But not uh, those who know him.